Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig Hanks, your host, here to remind you to go to thelegendarium.com for past episodes, for a calendar with future episodes, uh, and... Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Links to Patreon and to Discord so you can join the conversation. All right. Now that that's out of the way, I want to introduce my guest today, John Evans. John, how are you? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. John and I are here to discuss a very, um, it, it's a really simple topic and one that we're going to discuss exhaustively and solve all issues around it. And that's <laughs> AI and tech and how that works into fiction and nonfiction, the world around us and what we might expect from these things, because this kind of fits in with your newest book. In fact, I, I believe the day we're airing this, I can say the book just came out. I think it just came out a few days ago, John. Uh, so the book is Exadelic. Uh, the author is John Evans. Now, John, I was gonna take a stab at your bio but all I came up with was he's the guy who's been everywhere, done everything, seen everything, met everybody, <laughs> uh, knows everything. I, I, what am I missing? Why don't you give us a bio, John? I mean, I mean, I appreciate the hagiography, but I, I also describe it as easily <laughs> bored, which is less flattering sometimes. <laughs> but, so I grew up in a smallish town in Canada, Waterloo, um, studied engineering there uh, at the, the same school as my hometown and possibly overcompensated by spending the next 13 years bouncing randomly around the world, uh, working somewhere, going traveling through, you know, Southeast Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa for some months, finding another tech job somewhere and going traveling. And along the way, I started writing. I mean, I've been writing since I was 15, but I started writing seriously. Um, and just when it looked like this nomadic itinerant existence was going to have to come to an end and harsh reality was going to creep back into my life, I got a book deal and managed another few years of bouncing around, this time as a gallivanting novelist, writing mostly thrillers, um, before I eventually returned to the warm and much more lucrative embrace of the tech industry, uh, where, <laughs> where, where I live and work now in Berkeley. But I've been writing all along, um, and science fiction was always my first love. I grew up in science fiction. I spent most of my time on the internet the other days reading about science fiction. So it's super exciting to finally have written like a classic genre science fiction novel. Nice. There. Yeah, it's... Um... On the on the lucrative note, I've had a few conversations offline recently with some authors who have spilled some numbers, and it is shocking how little your favorite author probably makes. You know, your favorite author who isn't named Stephen King or Brandon Sanderson or George Martin or something like that. Like they, a, a successful author probably has a day job or at least a side gig or something it's yes. it's remarkable so yeah. uh tip your favorite author today uh <laughs> go find them on on coffee or patreon or something like that um okay so so the tech industry and you're doing that now you're as an working as an engineer at the moment yes i work for a very weird science fictional company actually appropriately enough um it's called metaculus and it's a provides a platform for predicting the future um, which a large number of people do. So right now, we people guessing is like, is the room temperature semiconductor superconductor a real thing? Or predicting, mm. you know, is AI going to rise? Like, and are the robots going to kill us all? Or predicting who's going to win the World Cup? That sort of thing. Um, Did you ever see devs? Yes. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Now yeah. like, we're getting into uh, you know, predictive models and whatnot. That's one of yeah. my all-time favorite Alex uh, miniseries. Yes. And oh. Alex Garland, who wrote devs, he wrote The Beach, which is like, mm-hmm. he also bounced around a lot in Travel The Beach and The Tesseract, which are two superb novels before he got into Hollywood. Big fan. I, yeah. I haven't read The Tesseract, um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a yeah. huge Alex Garland fan. I, I even liked Men, which nobody seemed to like. <laughs> But I'm not sure why I liked it. <laughs> I just really enjoyed it. I liked Ex Machina, which is very relevant, of course, being about oh, AI. Yeah. It didn't feel super modern. I thought it was interesting that nothing was networked. Everything was very isolated in Ex Machina. But as like a little human AI parable, it's fantastic. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So predictive models, that's what you're working on. And you mentioned a few things. Okay. Room yeah. temperature semiconductors or what? Is that what it was? Superconductors. Um, yeah, superconductors. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, that that's that could be interesting. But let's zero in on AI. When, according to your future predicting models, are we all going to die, John? So, thankfully, the models. But there are more people than like it's a hundred or so people. Um, I think on most of the questions, up to several hundred or a thousand on most of them. And the theory is the wisdom of the crowds approximates correctly. They think we're probably not going to die. By and oh, large, thank goodness. they do, however, um, the prediction has gone from we're going to get sort of what's called artificial general intelligence, which is AI sort of at least as good as humans at most things that's dropped from like 2050 something to 2032 in the last five years. Hmm. So, so there's a perceived rapid acceleration in progress, which is correct. There has been a rapid acceleration in progress. I, I, I want to tie this into writing in just a moment, but I kind of want to just stick on AI generally for a sec and say that my impression has been that the current iteration, the chat GPT and the, I, I can't remember all the names, the mm-hmm. visual versions of these, uh, these AI machines yeah. aren't, it, it's a bit like, um, <laughs> sorry, this is an, a strained analogy, but <laughs> when, when cord cutting became a thing and we got this, this brilliant new thing called sling tv and they called it a la carte tv and then somebody took them to court and they couldn't use that as their tagline anymore because it turns out this is not at all a la carte tv it's a marketing tagline my impression has been hey this is a really sophisticated program this is not ai the way that we understand it in our sci-fi novels uh or or what have you is that accurate or do you call it AI? Do you say, you know, this this is a, a thinking machine? Well, yes. No. I mean, the reason that people refer to it consistently as AI and not like another form of software or machine learning is actually a boring technical one. It's a completely different process from traditional software. Like AI engineers and normal software engineers almost can't talk to one another or don't use it all the same vocabulary. So we needed something to talk about the new field that we're talking about and AI was sitting there. And they're not thinking machines. No one would disagree. You know, they're taking numbers and guessing at new numbers ultimately. But at the same time, if you went to someone 10 years ago and said, hey, so we've come up with this machine that can, you know, write fiction and essays and draw arbitrary pictures and craft music and pass the LSAT and the MCAT, would you consider that AI? I think there's a reasonable chance that person might have said, okay, we're talking about something different now. So I do think like the goalposts have changed a little bit with every progression. Sure. Yeah. It's the, the old Arthur C. Clarke thing, right? Any sufficiently advanced technology. And so if you were to take chat GPT and, and send it 
to write an essay in the 1920s for some you know university exam people would freak out this is this is not okay <laughs> this is magic uh, but now it you know we've grown so used to technology that we see the limitations we see that like there is the great story of the the lawyer who submitted right, a brief right, to the course yeah. with false yeah it, he'd put into chat gpt i i need cases that you know that show x y or z and it spit out a bunch of you know historical cases turned out it made it all up <laughs> none of it was true um or uh, you know even something as simple as uh getting the fingers wrong on a hand, you know, humans having six fingers on their hand or, you know, uh, a bulge in the neck or something like that, where the, the AI just isn't quite, it's not human. It's not thinking it's, you know, delivering its inputs uh, just in a more sophisticated way yeah. than, than others. Other to, an, to an author though, this is kind of more of a feature than a bug. I mean, mm. this is, this is fantastically weird. If you know, you, you come to an author and say, well, we built a machine that can calculate numbers even more precisely. That's kind of boring. But if you've built, we've built a machine that can create art and do writing, but is terrible at math and makes things up all the time and can draw almost anything, but not hands for some reason. Like, this is fantastically weird. Like, this is a completely insane development, which I think people are under, are underappreciating just how weird this is, that we've, through great effort and enormous computational power, finally built a computer that can't do math. <laughs> That's a good point. So... Uh, you're, you seem to be having a good time with it. Is that because, uh, you, and what I mean is a lot of people are scared, you know, Hey, if I'm a, a writer or maybe I'm a short form online writer, uh, for some magazine or something, or I'm a novelist and some people are freaking out. Well, am I still going to have a job in 10 years because of chat GPT? You seem to be laughing about it. How do you feel about the issue? Do you, do you feel like the robots are coming for you? I mean, me personally, probably, uh, there's, I, I think you know, it's kind of funny because we were thinking we'll build an AI and AI will replace burger flippers and truck drivers. It's actually coming for the software engineers like me. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the thing that GPT-4 is really, really good at, in fact, the thing that it's really professional, high quality at, out of the box is, in fact, writing software. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that we're all going to replaced, be replaced, but I like. I think the fundamental approach to writing software is going to be pretty different in a few years time because the machines are very good at it, it turns out. So they're good at writing software, but they're, you know, it's it, human emotion might as well be, you know, the, the hand that it can't draw or something. Yes, right. Yeah. So that's, can, that, yeah. sorry, go on. Well, it can mimic emotion, right? Like right. it's pretty good at taking all other expressions of emotions that it has found or it has been trained with by whatever curiously opaque um, data set that, that got fed into it mm. and then mimicking it. But, you know, it, I don't think it's ever ever is a strong word, but I don't think the current technology is going to sort of push the envelope or do something new or heartrending in an original way. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah interesting. Yeah. I, when I think about this issue of AI, you know, is this AI as defined, you know, if we define it as um, a thinking machine, right? Something that yeah. can think and dare we say feel it's, it then of course leads us to the question of what does it mean to be human versus you know, an artificial intelligence. And uh, uh, as we make fun of the machine for not being able to kind of comprehend, you know, basic math or uh, get in touch with this person's uh, true emotional state, you then turn the lens inward and go, how good am I at math? You know, how good am I at, at understanding the people around me and spitting out 
um, uh, complex uh, thoughts and emotions based on my inputs, you know, and, and so then you get into, gosh, how artificial am I? <gasps> dun, dun, dun. So, yeah, this is, I mean, I've been looking into sort of the history of AI and the history of AI doom, just sort of interesting background to where we are now into the book. And so in 1970, um, Philip K. Dick wrote an essay and gave a talk in Vancouver called The Android of the Human, where he argued 53 years ago that, uh, that machines were becoming more human, you know, that they were, he wouldn't be, have been all surprised to discover we built machines that can create art and do writing, but are bad at math, but also that we are becoming more robotic, that our society is becoming more bureaucratic and constrained and our reactions to things are more sort of templated and automatic than they used to be. And, you know, he suggests that at some point they're going to overlap, which of Ooh. course, yeah. I mean, that's a lot of his work, right? The, the replicants right. in Blade Runner, you know, there's, yeah, was Bill K. Human. Dick was, was, yeah. uh, uh, he thought differently than just about anybody that I there is no denying that yes <laughs> his brain just worked yeah. different right yeah. um oh man yeah i've got to go back and look that up again it's been a while i i'm familiar with the thing you're talking about but it's been yeah. years and years since i came across it um okay so what what do you see i you know i've brought up the the whole authors out that stealing our jobs or whatever but what do you see as some potential issues or current real issues that we should be aware of when it comes to ai especially as readers and writers but really as anything else i think a really big issue is that ai has essentially killed the college essay um mm. in the high school essay and i i don't honestly see how that's coming back you know there were attempts to sort of figure out was this ai written was this human written i think those are doomed and we're never going to get to any good sort of you know real way to deal with that if people are trying to hide it one way or another and I think that's a problem. I think writing is important and you learn things by writing and you learn how to structure your thoughts by writing. And if we're disincentivizing writing um, at the high school and college level, then that's something we're going to have to do something about. And whether that means sitting down in Faraday cages and writing by longhand or in typewriters, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. <laughs> but but that is a genuine concern. Um, okay. And of course, there's the question of this data that's trained on, where did it all come from? Is it legal? Is it legal is very much an open question, right? Like there's going to be a Supreme Court decision in a few years time that's going to have enormous downstream effects. I think. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, there's also the, the confluence. You just reminded me, I, I listened to a mildly terrifying podcast uh, <laughs> a few days ago about um, I, I'm trying to remember the, the phrasing because I, 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 this stuff is so beyond my uh, ken. Um, but it was about, uh, here, no, no, it's gone <laughs> <laughs> about basically thought, uh, how, how scientists and engineers are able to hook up magnets and electrodes and whatnot and, and read and manipulate thought, um, to a certain extent, you know, you, you think, oh, this is a technology that's in its very nascent phase. And then this podcast I was listening to, was like, nah, it's getting pretty advanced where you you wear a baseball cap with certain things inside of it and suddenly you can um you can think instead of type and the words appear on the page that sort of thing um it, predicting where your arms and legs are going and uh and what you're going to be doing anyway so that plus the ai it, it like i said mildly terrifying but i think that was the goal of the podcast so this is like the technology is not old but i i wrote for TechCrunch for 10 years and like a long time ago 2010 i wrote about this uh, startup that had this sort of web of sensors that you put on your head 
Um, and if you thought the right thoughts with the right strength, you could use it to control things. Um, some friends of mine in Toronto promptly started using it to control a flamethrower, which Obviously. is more than a little. Yes. The first thing you go to, right? Immediately to the flamethrower. Boys with toys. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it works. So that was a little disconcerting. And of course, that was in the pre-AI area. And now, you know, we're going to have better sensors. We're going to have better understanding of those sensors. The AIs are very good at figuring out and decoding, you know, how those protocols and sensors work. So we are going to get more fine-tuned control. The new superconductor uh, data, if that's real, that means mm. we'll have room temperature MRIs, right? So that, in turn, could sort of reinforce this. So that's going to be super weird and super interesting. It's going to be, I would presume, fairly voluntary. If you want to have a little AI voice whispering into your head at all times, I guess that's up to you. Not my thing. <laughs> I, I, so my oldest brother is over the moon about the concept of driverless cars. Uh, he's my, he's older than me by several years. And I feel like I'm the crotchety old guy who's like, you can take my steering wheel from my cold dead hands. Right. I don't, I don't want the robots whispering in my ear or driving my car or all that. Um, but Hey, I, I'm hardly a Luddite obviously, but yes. uh, I, I'm, yeah. but I'm, I don't know, old, <laughs> maybe, uh, we'll see. So here's a question for you. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I want to go back, actually, before I get to that question. I, you mentioned getting into Faraday cages and writing novels. Uh, that's what made <laughs> me think of that. Uh, what they call it the neurotechnology was the word I was right, looking yeah. for, uh, where you have to like hide from the machines that can read your, your thoughts. Um, have you read Heroes Die, uh, Matt, Matt Stover? I have not. I know of it, but I haven't read it. Okay, yeah, we're covering it again for anybody listening. Uh, Drew McCaffrey from Inking Out Loud. He and I are going to be doing a series on the Acts of Cain. Um, and it's uh, there's a, a net, like a silver net, very much like that, that you drape over your head or your whole body, and suddenly magic can't affect you. And it's it feels very uh, huh. similar yeah. to that sort of thing. Remember, um, remember Edward Snowden when he was doing oh, his yeah. leaks to the Guardian and so forth? They'd get together in his apartment in Hong Kong and had everyone take their phones out and put them in the fridge because fridges are very effective Faraday cages. Yeah. Right. Oh, how yeah. interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. So, a question for you Is a, at what point is a book written by AI no longer a piece of human art? Okay. So, is there a line? I know a lot of people, especially, you know, emails and college admissions essays and whatnot, where they'll, they'll put something yeah. into chat GPT, it'll spit something out and they may not use that, but it's a starting point for them. Oh yeah, that's an interesting idea. I'll riff on that. And, and they, they use it as their starting point. I could see books doing a similar thing. Hey, outline for me a hero's quest story about a farm boy and a dark Lord and a, whatever other tropes you want to put in there. And it spits out an outline for you. And then you go ahead and write the book or just have it write the entire thing for you. Do you have a sense of where your line would be or where you'd like everybody else's line to be <laughs> as well? I guess I do. I mean, I have no interest in collaborating with an AI on, on writing a book. Like I think the whole point of writing books is you should be writing a book that only you can write. There's already too many books mm -hmm. in the world and you should be trying to be unique anyways. That said, like, Collage and cut up is a legitimate art form of artistic impression, right? If you take a thousand public domain postcards and you collage them together in an interesting way, you know, 
then the collage is obviously a work of art in and of itself. And I guess hypothetically, I could extend that to text, but I don't know. It doesn't really work for me. I think the Copyright Office's recent judgment, which is that a work is copyrightable to the extent that it is created by a human, is actually mm. not a bad bar to go by. Like, obviously, I can envision a future in which we assign AI personhood to like a million times better AIs in the future and they get the copyright, blah, 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 or and it's their art. Um, but for now, I think I'm leaning towards it as like collage elements of public domain art is the closest analogy. Mm. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I'm not sure where I come down on this. Like I said, I'm, I'm pretty anti-robot in my yeah. own, you know, personal day to day. Uh, well, no, I, that's not true. I've, I've got some assistance behind me <laughs> that I, I can't say her name or else she wakes up and, you know, then, you yeah. know, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I, but I, yeah, I struggle with this a little bit. Like the whole point of art is to. Uh, understand the human condition right, and to exactly. communicate it. And if a machine is doing that, I'm just not sure that I, uh, that I would feel or respect the same uh, thing. It's yeah. like um, years ago that it's been, gosh, decade or two now that uh, somebody came out with an algorithm that analyzed um, Mozart's music and then was able to spit out false Mozart music, but they what they did was um, they would create these sonatas or you know what have you uh, with this, for lack of a better word, AI. They would have them performed and then go take them to Mozart experts and see if they could fool them and say, "Hey, we found something huh. in an attic. It's a lost piece of of Mozart. Uh, we need you to authenticate this." And you know they they would trick them or not, but it, it worked. Uh, more often than not, where people thought, oh, yeah, this, no, this is Mozart based on his habits and, and whatnot. But he wrote music very mathematically, right? It was very precise right. um, and not not so poetically. Uh, but anyway, where am I going with this? What, I guess the idea with writing is maybe kind of similar. You could break down certain aspects of writing and thinking into these kind of mathematical categories, but there are going to be other things that are missing, right? That the impressionistic stuff. Yeah. And like, to be clear, I myself from writing, I'm all impressionistic. Like I'm a very left brain person. Obviously I'm an engineer, right? Software. I used to be a journalist and so forth. But when it comes to writing fiction, I'm just like, okay, subconscious, do your thing. I'm jumping <laughs> in the cliff into the darkness. I hope this works out. That's pretty much the extent of it. Um, I don't even have beta readers. I'm just like, well, I, I hope it, I think it looks good to me. We'll, we'll send it out. That said, I can envision a, like you feed a novel into an AI and it, you know, analyzes it and comes back and says, you know, you have four plot lines here and the third one just completely ends and never gets interwoven into the mm -hmm. other three. Was that deliberate? So like a critical analytical, you know, structural analysis, maybe I personally would not want to do it, but I wouldn't, say it was bad or rule it out for other people that would be yeah that would be interesting i've used things in the past you know when i used to uh, you said you blogged for TechCrunch for a while i did the same type of thing and i would write you know hundreds and hundreds of blog posts and sometimes you feed it into the uh, like a grammar uh what what do they call it that like a grammarly or something yeah. where it'll yeah. say hey you know you've used the word excited four times in the last six paragraphs, yeah. chill out, you know, or whatever, um, where I, I have used those, but that's, I, I don't know, that's not, um, 
if you've yeah. written something and then get advice from an AI, I, I, maybe I'm more warm to that. I'm not sure. I don't even like that, honestly. What a, I write in Microsoft Word, and the first thing I do is turn off Grammar Checker. I have no interest in its opinion. <laughs> Nobody wants that stupid yes. little thing popping up in the corner. <laughs> yes. Hey, you want a cartoon in the middle of uh, outlining your novel? No, I don't. No, thank you. <laughs> it looks like you're trying to take over the world. Let me give you some tips. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you ever get, because you've written many uh, things at this point, do you ever get that fear of like, I'm, I need to learn about X, that most people don't understand because it's illegal or immoral or whatever, but you're Googling the heck out of medieval torture techniques or whatever. <laughs> like, so, oh no. So yes, but I also have a naturally criminal mind. I'm, I'm sorry to admit. So I always think, well, I can always claim it's research. <laughs> it's a very convincing, compelling story. That's really why I wrote these books. Just to have an alibi. So. There you go. Oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, you heard it here first. I was going to say folks, but really what I mean is FBI. Uh, you heard it here first, FBI. Uh, that's excellent. Um, yeah, no, I get that pretty often. I'm, you know, open up the incognito tab, turn on the VPN and start yeah. searching like medieval torture methods because you need to know how this actually worked back in the day. And it's like, I, I don't need this screwing up my, my regular algorithm. <laughs> Who knows what Instagram uh, ads I'm going to start getting popping up on my Yeah, you, you definitely do not want those Amazon recommendations. So. <laughs> uh, okay, man, I am, uh, I'm, I'm letting myself go very far afield here. <laughs> Let's actually talk about your book because I think this is going to feed nicely into this the discussion. Usually I kind of just wait and put it at the bitter end of the episode, but I kind of want to talk about it because it's going to, feed into what we've been going over. So tell us a little bit about Exadelic, uh, the new book that just came out. Check the link in the description. Go get it, everybody. Okay, tell us about it, John. Right. So I mean, there's two summaries. One is the one that's sort of out there on the Amazon page, the, the man on the run synopsis, where an AI that the US military, for mysterious reasons, has trained in occult magic, has decided that our protagonist, our insignificant, mild-mannered, middle-manager protagonist, is the primary threat to its existence. But sort of underlying that is the big idea version, which is the notion that if we were to build an AI smart enough to investigate like the fundamental nature of the universe, and it starts finding bugs in the fundamental nature of the universe, if the, if the substrate of the universe is more like software than it is like hardware, and there are bugs in that software, um, which is actually something people have proposed, like Stephen Wolfram has suggested our entire universe is an interlocking set of mathematical cellular automata. And that sort of dictates how particles interact with one another everywhere. Um, so it's like a quasi-legitimate claim, depending on how legitimate you think Wolfram is, I suppose. <laughs> um, Fair. Yeah. Um, but if you go there, then like the obvious next step is like, if we're talking about a universe made of software, then are we talking about a simulation, dare I say the word? Mm. Um, so minor spoiler for the book, but like end of the first act, we determine not only is the universe fundamentally made of software at like the sub 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 atomic level, but it appears to be constructed such that if a sufficiently intelligent AI comes into existence, um, like the one that just discovered this, then it starts to shut down. The universe or the that AI? is correct. The universe. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. That's, so this is very much a, uh, the, like an MCU level, the universe is in peril. We must keep the the 
uh, infinity stones out of this yeah. AI's hands. And it's, well, it, it's it's sort of an AI doom scenario, but I mean, the AI is as doomed as the rest of us <laughs> under this scenario, as it turns mm. out. So, so is, it, it, is it a, just by observing this fact, it begins unraveling the universe just by knowing that it's... Unfor unfortunately, yes. Oh my. But you oh know, it's like, it, but it's like shutting down the computer, right? It's not instantaneous. A little hourglass pops up and the things start orderly shutting down in the background. So we've got like a week. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Live it up, everybody. <laughs> exactly. Sounds great. <laughs> so, so this is, uh, it, it sounds very interesting. And you, you got the big idea, but then you zoom in on the, like you said, the Amazon synopsis, mm -hmm. the guy on the run. Um, you have to couch it in a personal story. You have to make it um, yeah. about about a person or a small group, right? To make it uh, relatable. So, um, so that's the big idea behind this novel. What, as you wrote it, did you, in doing your research for it and using the stuff you already understand, did it make you more or less scared of the future? Writing this book. I mean, if you think far enough into the future, and it's not the minor spoiler, this goes pretty far into the future, ultimately, um, you start realizing that things are going to get super weird. I, so I had professional reason to think far into the future. I directed this very weird archive program, the GitHub archive program that stored the world's open source software beneath an Arctic mountain, um, where it sits right now to this day, perfectly safe, uh, should we lose all of our software. But the, the remit for that was 1,000 years. So you're like, okay, what's the world going to be like in 1,000 years? Are people going to know what software is? <laughs> yeah. are, are people going to be people as we understand it? 1,000 years is an extremely long time. And you start realizing that stuff is going to get really weird. You have no idea how weird. And like the possible futures for humanity are all over the place. Um, so that's, that's a little scary, a little exciting. You know, are people going to look back at this time as like, one of great savagery and barbarism or we'll look back at this as a golden age oh oh to live in the early 21st century <laughs> well if uh if all we have is the past to go by then i'd say oh thank god i live in the early 21st century <laughs> uh but yeah looking into the future who knows exactly that's a, yep. a very interesting question um Okay, cool. Any any other tidbits you want to give people about the book uh, in, in this pitch for them well, to go check it out? I guess the connection between the big idea and the, and the sort of man on the run idea is ultimately, it turns out people he knew were in, central to the creation of this AI. And that sort of ties back to like, I've been working in the tech industry and in Silicon Valley proper for the last decade or so. And the kind of connection between how you get small groups of people you know, who are sort of weirdly interlinked and it's sort of unclear how they get to know one another. And together they want to building things that have remarkable downstream effects around the world. The sort of weird, you know, the whole market meat thing of like a small group of committed people, except in this case, a small group of weirdo nerds who don't necessarily even like each other all that much can wind up changing the world almost despite themselves. And that is kind of the story for better or for worse of Silicon Valley frequently. So it's a metaphor there. Um, yeah, I'm looking up the quote now. I'm trying to trying to find who said that. Yeah, the small group of committed ideological minorities is what makes the world change and turn. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I can't remember who said that now. Um, shoot, like Irving Crystal or something like that. Nah, I, I think it was Margaret Mead. And I think the quote is, never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. Indeed, that is the only thing that ever has. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. most of us just want comfort, right? Yeah. So, all right. So everybody should go check out the book. The book is Exadelic. 
Um, and it's, is the book going to awaken um, curiosity about AI or uh, is this uh, a different kind of story? I, I read some stories where I'm like, ooh, now I need to learn about Indian mythology. This is so fun. Are people going to want to learn about AI? Is it going to scare them off? Is it, uh, so what are they going to think... get out of it? I mean, I think it is, although, I mean, I'm realistic. There has been a tidal wave of AI interest in the last year, which from obviously. a publicity point of view, I'm very grateful for, obviously. When I read this book, I had no idea that was going to happen. Really? You know, it, yeah, yeah. And I knew it was going to happen at some point, but it happened faster than I expected. So it may tinge that, and people may find certain aspects of it pretty interesting. But yeah, I, I think by and large, people are going to start thinking in the further future who have read this book, about the mm. prospects of AI and you know what it means to be human in the future. And, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. And uh, where, how far into the future are you talking about looking? Wait, yeah. are you talking, uh, what's the next 10 years look like? Are you, are, are you saying we're all going to be thinking about what are we, what do we look like in a thousand years, like you said, or? Let's call it centuries anyways. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, there's so much that has happened in the last 20 years that, has been shocking and completely unpredictable that I have stopped even trying. <laughs> I have no idea where we're going to end up in five years. Uh, Honestly, the, the last two weeks have been nuts. Like there's a, I saw something floating around, like there's a very effective cancer drug allegedly entering phase one trials. We got room temperature semiconductors in the last two weeks. It looks like I woke up 3 a.m. last night and found out that a space factory company in Los Angeles had replicated those results on premises. Oh, so, wow. Yes. So, yeah, we, we live in a strange and exciting time, which is good because I feel like the last five years, like post everyone have a smartphone were a little bit boring from a tech science fiction point of view and i feel like we're being swept away into some sort of new current again it and isn't that just the way it goes it's yeah. uh, when it rains it pours very much sort of thing um oh, you you sparked something in my head oh yeah the other thing was uh, the possibility of cold fusion where right. yeah. somebody has yeah. uh for those who don't know that it, it's not been done at scale yet but the concept the test it was successful where it's it's looking like possibly within my lifetime we'll have um uh infinite renewable non-carbon emitting energy yeah. and it but but to be clear just, we're getting we're getting that anyways like solar power is getting so cheap so fast it is now cheaper to build a new solar plant than to continue running the old fossil fuel plants in many oh, really? parts of the world yes oh, uh, yeah. What it, uh, sorry, this is a total tangent, but since you might know, I, and uh, because this is my podcast, haha, sorry, book nerds, but I'm going off on tech for a second. <laughs> I remember reading when I was in college, so this would have been 15 years ago, a book that was my first introduction to the idea of the, um, the space solar array and the microwave beams and, uh, you know, getting power to Earth that way. Do you? You seem to know about uh, you know solar power and whatnot. Are, are we going to be using solar power? Is it going to be this uh, cold fusion? Where do you think we're headed? We are going to be using solar power. I don't think we're going to need the space reflectors. Like there is enough solar power beamed down into the state of Nevada to power the planet right now, the wow. entire planet. You if know, you, are you saying like if you coated the state of Nevada in solar yeah. arrays? Yeah, okay. but you know, Nevada would be excessive to our needs, and then you know. There's no shortage of deserts on planet Earth. There's no shortage of solar power raining down from the sky. Um, we're going to need fusion in space. I have heard a crazy notion that we could power things on the moon. 
by beaming microwave energy from Earth to the moon. And then as long as, yes, I know. <laughs> and then as long as your machines are in range of the microwave transmissions on the moon, then you get enough power to sort of move, move moon rovers around and that sort of thing just beam down from Earth. That's, you know, I... And here I sit in this studio. I like books. I, I'm a big fan of video games. I'm sure glad there are people like you, John, who actually consider this stuff and work toward it because this is so far over my head. I can hardly stand it. I love it. All right. Well, John Evans, uh, the book is Exadelic. Like I said, I'll put the uh, link in the show notes for people to check out. Um, but John, any parting thoughts? Um, I will just tell you the story of the title, uh, which is Exa, yeah. the prefix for a million trillion things, and Delic, of course, as in psychedelic. So it's not, uh -huh. it's an unusual book. It's a colorful one. I don't think it's one you'll forget anytime soon. So there's, you your, enjoy, ele there's your elevator pitch. <laughs> it's uh, So wait, what would the translation of exadelic be then? Uh, 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 a million trillion psychedelica. It's more of an invented word than a translation. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'm thinking of like a kaleidoscope of yeah, exactly. uh, being high as uh, F. Uh, so there's your elevator pitch. Yes. Imagine doing a bunch of drugs and then getting a kaleidoscope and laying on the floor. And starting it, it is a very weird book. When I finished it, I did not think, oh, here comes famine fortune. I thought, my God, what have I done? So... <laughs> Well, for anybody who does check the book out, and I hope you do, uh, hop on Discord and let us know. Uh, I, I would love to hear about it. My copy will arrive when it is released, I suppose. Which <laughs> so was a few, was a few days ago, it. I remind you. So, yes. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd love to uh, get into a little discussion on that book as well. So uh, thank you, John, for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to go to thelegendarium.com for all the reasons I've mentioned at the top of the show. And we'll call it there. Thank you uh, to John. Thank you to you for listening. And thank you to me for, you know, still podcasting because I, I it's like it's like my steering wheel. I won't let this podcast go. <laughs> I take it from my cold, dead hands. All right, everybody. I'll see you next time.